The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down at the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. Broadcasting before and probably after the rapture, it's the Drew Marshall Show. Coming back from some mill in Wisconsin. As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most, with a crew and good captain well seasoned. That's right, folks, November 10th, 1975, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald tragedy happened. Took the lives of 20 men, sorry, 29 men, sons, brothers, fathers, husbands. And um, I watched Gordon Lightfoot do a bit of an interview, because look... Would you know about the Edmund Fitzgerald had it not been for the song? I think I may have remembered it being mentioned on the, the CBC News because it was a big deal, but for sure, otherwise, no. Let's do a little dramatic thing. You ready? Okay. Let's just have this low in the background. I'm going to read to you the um, the names the, of the, the, no, the communication between... Um, the shore and the boat? Yeah, basically. All right. <laughs> Glad I could help. Thanks. 1975, November 9th, 8.30 a.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald is loaded with... Is it tassinite pellets? Taconite or tassinite? He just calls it iron ore. At Burlington Northern Railroad, Dock 1, the ship is scheduled to transport the cargo to Zug Island on the Detroit River. 2.20 p.m., the Fitzgerald departs Lake Superior on route of Detroit with 26,116 tons of pellets, iron ore. Which is it? Iron or Uh, 2.39, the National Weather Service issues gale warnings for the area which the Fitzgerald is sailing in. Captain Cooper on the Anderson radios a freighter, the Edmund Fitzgerald, that he spots. The Fitzgerald spots the Arthur M. Anderson some 15 miles behind it. And then on November 10th at 1 a.m., weather report from the uh, Fitzgerald. The report from the Fitzgerald shows her to be 20 miles south of Isle Royale. Winds are at 52 knots with waves 10 feet high. 7 a.m. Weather report from the Fitzgerald. Winds are at 35 knots, waves of 10 feet. This is the last weather report that the Evan Fitzgerald will ever make. 3.15 p.m. Captain Jesse Cooper, J.C. of the SS Arthur M. Anderson, watches the Fitzgerald round Caribou Island and comments that the Fitzgerald is much closer to Six Fathom Shoal than he would want them to be. And at 3.20 p.m., Anderson reports winds coming from the northwest at 43 knots. At 3.30 p.m., radio transmission between the Fitzgerald and the Anderson. Captain McSorley to Captain Cooper. Anderson, this is Fitzgerald. I've sustained some topside damage. I have a fence rail laid down, two vents lost or damaged, and a list. I'm checking down. Will you stay by me until I get to Whitefish? Charlie on that, Fitzgerald. Do you have your pumps going? Yes, to both of them. 4.10 p.m., the Fitzgerald radios the Arthur M. Anderson requesting radar assistance for the remainder of the voyage. Fitzgerald. Anderson, this is Fitzgerald. I've lost both radars. Can you provide me with radar plots till we reach Whitefish Bay? Anderson. Charlie and that, Fitzgerald. We'll keep you advised of position. 
But 4.39 p.m., the Fitzgerald cannot pick up the Whitefish Point radio beacon. The Fitzgerald radios the Coast Guard station at Grand Marais on uh, Channel 16, the emergency channel. Between 4.30 and 5 p.m., the Emmett Fitzgerald calls for any vessel in the Whitefish Point area regarding information about the beacon and light at Whitefish Point. They receive an answer by the saltwater vessel, Afavors, that the beacon and the light are not operating. 5.30 and 6 p.m., radio transmission between the Afavors and the Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald, this is Afavors. I have the Whitefish light now, but still am receiving no beacon. Over. Fitzgerald, I'm very glad to hear it. Apovores, the wind is really howling down here. What are the conditions where you are? Undiscernible shouts heard by the Apovores. Don't let nobody on deck. Apovores, what's that, Fitzgerald? Unclear. Over. Fitzgerald, I've had a bad list. Lost both radars. I'm taking heavy seas over the deck. One of the worst seas I've, I've been in. Apovores, if I'm correct, you have two radars. Fitzgerald, they're both gone. And sometime around 7 p.m., the main hatchway caved in, as the song goes. The Anderson is struck by two huge waves that put water on the ship 35 feet above the waterline. The waves hit with enough force to push the starboard lifeboat down, damaging the bottom. 7.10 p.m., radio transmission between the Anderson and the Fitzgerald. The Fitzgerald is still being followed by Arthur M. Anderson. They're about 10 miles behind the Fitzgerald. Anderson, Fitzgerald, this is the Anderson. Have you checked down? Fitzgerald, yes, we have. Anderson, Fitzgerald, we're about 10 miles behind you and gaining about one and a half miles per hour. Fitzgerald, there is a target 19 miles ahead of us, so the target would be nine miles on ahead of you. Fitzgerald, well, am I going to clear? Anderson, yes, he's going to pass to the west of you. Fitzgerald, well, fine. Anderson, by the way, Fitzgerald, how are you making out with your problem? Fitzgerald, we're holding our own. Anderson, okay, fine, I'll, I'll be talking to you later. They never did speak later. 29 men on board the Edmund Fitzgerald will never again speak with anyone outside the ship. Sometime between 7.20 and 7.30 p.m. is when the Edmund Fitzgerald sank 40 years ago. In a musty old hall in Detroit they prayed in the Maritime Sailors' Cathedral church bell chimed till it rang 29 times for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald. The legend lives on from the Chippewa down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. Superior, they said, never gives up her dead when the gales of November come early. Thank you, Mr. Lightfoot. Wouldn't have cared one holy grunt about any of this had it not been for you. What a song. I was talking to Michelle and my assistant the other day about some of the Gordon Lightfoot songs that have stood out for me. Canadian Railroad Trilogy is one of my Mm all-time favorites. Yeah, uh, of course, now I can't think of it. Uh, Sunshine. Summertime Dreams. Yes, yes, Summertime Dreams, yeah. Just incredible. All right, Timmy, are you ready to move on with the rest of our show? I am so ready. 
Folks, it's time for our WTF segment. That's where we are joined by a variety of religion reporter, reporters from an assortment of news outlets. <laughs> reporters. Reporters. <laughs> I'm a reporter. I'm reporting in for duty. Uh, as they ca- we catch up on the world of uh, religion and faith and cults. Oh, my. Tom Kratnemaker, he is the columnist for USA Today, communications director at Yale Divinity, author of The Evangelicals You Don't Know, and Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower will be coming out on October 2016. Tom, so good to have you back in the show. It's been a long time. How you doing? Hello, Drew. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it has been a while, but I'm delighted to be with you today. Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower. Dude, lay that out for us. What's that all about? Other than my life, maybe. I don't know. I just finished it uh, and sent it. I officially submitted it yesterday, so it's very timely that we're talking about it now. Yeah, it looks at how um, a secular person like me could benefit from having some kind of engagement with the figure of Jesus, the ethical instruction, the inspiration, trying to make Jesus available to people who aren't part of the Christian world, might never be part of the Christian world, but there's so much there. Hmm. So as I say, I'm trying to lay out what it might look like for people like me to be able to uh, benefit from this amazing body of teachings and inspiration. Well, could you do me a favor? Yes. Thank you. I had to wait for you to say yes. Um, <laughs> no matter what, if no I'm what you say. if I'm still on the air in October of 2016, could we maybe get you on the show? Book it. Book them, Dano. Beautiful. All right. Are you worried that you might not be on the air anymore? If I'm here. Well, I'm I'm actually trying to plan a little. Gee, do I announce this now? Is this coming out Ooh, now? Sensitive topic, Drew. Maybe I shouldn't have said. No, that. it's not a sensitive topic. Um. Yeah, I'll lay it out there. So. Um, you're pregnant, and I'm pregnant. Nine months from now, <laughs> actually, it's twelve months from now. You're like an the elephant. Yeah, <laughs> like an elephant. a little longer in males. No, at that point, um, I will be coming up to my fiftieth birthday, and I would like to be on the Camino Trail during my fiftieth birthday. So, if I can somehow financially swing it to not do the show uh, at the start of next year, then I would like to be on the Camino Trail. Uh, the uh, the pilgrimage from Amazing. France over to Spain. It takes a, oh, just over a month to do it, but I wanted to see if I could do it in two months because that's how I did school. Same kind of theory. Uh, <laughs> and he's going to set all the things on fire on the way through. Yeah, but I uh, okay, no one knows what you're talking about. You can't drop nuggets like that. That's why. Anyway, all that's to say, that's why I, I'm not sure what's happening at that point in time. Uh, Tom, I know so... People, I know people who have done that pilgrimage, and it seems amazing. I haven't done it myself, but I hope you get to do it. Thank you. I hope so as well. What is going on in France, man? Seriously. This is one of those days when it seems like the world is falling apart, and there's so much bad stuff. That's all I've been thinking about all day and all last night. Yeah, really, I'm um, heartbreaking. That's a lot of people who were killed. Pure evil. Yeah, you've got... Uh... ISIS involved in this, and the, one of ISIS's motivating is it ISI? <laughs> ISIS is ISOLs. ISOLs. <laughs> no, I meant ISIL. That's the other way they say it. But I no, I, I enjoy the double entendre now. ISIS and those ISOLs. Um, the the issue I have here is that you know one of their motivating factors is religion. Yeah. But is is it a bastardization of that religion? I don't yeah. know enough about the religion to to really see where they're coming from. And and then you you take into into uh, this whole equation how close all those countries are over there. It's a different deal over here in Canada. You know, they got to get on a boat or get on a plane and get over here, and that's the only way they're going to be able to get into our country is through those ports. Since we have some pretty good filtration systems there for the most part, but mm-hmm. these these guys can just sneak across borders left, right, and center. 
And and then you're into homegrown stuff. Like, you know, one of the people that they do know about is a French guy, you know, 30-something-year-old French guy who's who has been um, screwed over by the ISIS mentality. So mm. uh, They just arrested someone in Brussels who's connected to it. Right, right. So from a religious point of view... Um, you know, Tom, what, can you give us an idea of, of uh, maybe an article you may be putting together on this? I mean, where does your brain go? It's, it is a bastardization, to use the word that you cited. It. And I was thinking about that word, too, as I was thinking about the conversation we were going to have. So I'm not an expert on Islam or the Quran, but I have a lot of Muslim friends. I've been to many events that talk about these problems in the Islamic world. Um, most of the Muslims I know, I know from survey data that the vast, vast majority of Muslims around the world reject this evil nonsense. It's not, it's not at all mainstream, legitimate Islam. I was reading an article uh, this morning that was in the Atlantic back in March, and it really traces the roots of ISIS. This goes back to like a 7th century version of Islamic religion and culture. It's ancient. It's extremely problematic. I'm so worried about the implications of this news. I'm sure that um, you know what I'm saying when I tell you that the drums of war are beating now. Yeah. Yeah. You've heard the rhetoric from the French president, and I understand that. I'm, I'm your typical liberal pacifist. I don't know how a step that military action can be avoided, given what's happened. Well, well, you know, we certainly couldn't start a conversation with you and not talk about that to start off with. But l let's go into your USA Today article uh, about the Little Sisters. Oh, yeah. A, a singing group of nuns, uh, nun, <laughs> midget nuns. They seem like such an innocent subject. We can't say midget subject. anymore. Can, can, wait, can you say midget anymore? No, it's little people, I think. All oh, right, little people, sorry. Yeah. Vertically challenged? Vertically challenged nuns is yes. what it sounds like, oh, Little you guys Sisters. are so PC. <laughs> well, we're liberals like you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so tell everyone about this article. What's going on? You think they should drop their case. What are you talking about? This is one of the ramifications of the so-called Obamacare legislation, the health care reform yeah. that has been such an ongoing conflict in the United States. Um, one aspect of it is that these employer-provided health care plans have to include coverage for contraception, Right. Now, of course, America being America and religious freedom being important here, exemptions were carved into that law so that if you're a church, you don't have to provide that if you don't want. Hmm. So, clear enough so far, right? Yep. Now, but that's churches. What about religious nonprofits or corporations that are run by religious people? Can they also get the exemption? So that became the next battleground. And that's where we get into this new Supreme Court case. So at first, all these religious nonprofits, like Little Sisters of the Poor, said, we need an exemption, and the Obama administration figured one out for them. They said, okay, you don't want to provide contraceptives because you believe it's um, against your faith, fine, we have a workaround. You don't have to provide it, but you let us know that, it's, uh, that you, you don't like it, and this will activate a third party to come in and make sure that those employees who want it can get this contraception. And now we come to today's issue. These religious nonprofits said, no, submitting a form, that too is a violation of our religious freedom, and it makes us complicit in the ongoing implementation of something that we think is uh, morally wrong. Man. And, you know, when I wrote the piece, we were anticipating that the Supreme Court was going to take it, and yes, they have, and that's been in the news this week. Yeah. So this is going to the Supreme Court, yet another religious freedom case. It really, we are living in just a... I don't want to say exciting time, because that's a lame word to put on this, but 
It is just a bizarre time. That's not even the right word either. The whole religious freedom thing is, I think this is the biggest time in our history where religious freedom uh, is is at the top of a lot of people's minds, even those that aren't religious, you know. so Yeah, I've been pontificating a lot on this. I've had several columns about it. You probably know where, um, where I come down on this. Now, I'd be the first to say that religious freedom is extremely important in freedom of conscience. But um, I think that it's been distorted. I think it's been taken out of proportion. I think it's been um, put forward in some ways that are very problematic and simplistic, and in some ways even immature, because hmm. when people are asserting this in such extreme cases, they're failing to point out that there are many other principles at stake, there are many other freedoms at stake. And the worst thing is that the form of religious um, freedom articulation that we're seeing now has to do with your ability to control what other people do and believe, not just what you do and believe. Mm -hmm. And that's when it gets to be extremely problematic and, frankly, unworkable and unsustainable. I mean, it's one thing for me to assert my freedom and what I'm going to do, but when I'm trying to control other people's behavior and indicate that it's my religious freedom to do so, that's problematic. Tom Crattenmaker's on the phone with us. He's a columnist for USA Today, communications director at Yale Divinity. That's really hard to say. I want to try it again. Communications director at Yale Divinity. No, it was easy. Author of The Evangelicals You Don't Know and Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower will be coming out on October 2016. Um, Tom, the, um, the Catholic World Meeting of Families Sounds yes. like maybe the most boring uh, conference to ever go to. So, is that uh, an indication that you're not going to be attending uh, next year or the next time? Well, like when they have it in Canada, you're not going to go? Yeah, I, I just, uh, I think I have a funeral to go to that day next year. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, but there were some interesting, uh, once again, these um, these conflicts that we have in U.S. culture around religion and public life. They were there again they're popping up in many ways. And um, I wrote about that because the framers and the organizers of this big meeting, which, by the way, included a speech by Pope Francis, hmm. the organizers of this proclaimed that love was their mission. This was all about the Catholic family and love, and that's great, and I'd be the very first to applaud that. But um, as I wrote, if you were um, a gay person or in some way connected with a gay family, you probably weren't feeling so much love because there was not really a place for them at the table. And that's interesting, because Pope Francis has been changing his tone and some of the rhetoric around this, but it was a reminder that um, however effective Francis is at gesture and making people feel good, the Catholic Church hasn't changed in terms of official policy and doctrine and teaching. And so for um, non-traditional families, this was a reminder and probably kind of a painful moment. Hmm. Can you, you know, I, I want to jump topics here for a second because w the way you're talking, it, it makes me, um, well, it reminds me of the Starbucks uh, dilemma, the uh, the war on Christmas that Kirk Cameron. Oh, what a bunch of silliness. Yeah, that Kirk Cameron started a few years ago. Um, just kidding. Every time I say, every time I make fun of Kirk, I, I hear, not every time, but quite often I will hear back from Candace, his sister. I think you hear her in your <laughs> head right now. She is not impressed. She <laughs> will send me a text and s tell me to stop it, so sorry about that. You will get in trouble for that, huh? Yes, I will. But um, are you going to write something about this? Are you, I mean, just the I'm whole... About it cause I'm, yeah, I wrote something last year, too, about all this nonsense around Christmas. Because I'm sort of tired of it, and I think that there's a lot of lame... A lot of lame rhetoric and gesture out there. Yeah, yeah. And well, I'm frankly involved in something that's a really refreshing counterweight to all this war on Christmas nonsense, and so I'm uh, gearing up to write a column about this. Tell me about that. 
Well, as you probably would guess, I have a problem with those who claim with these over-the-top exaggerations that there's a war on Christmas. But I'm also fed up with some of the secular organizations that feel like they need to fight every Christmas tree, every manger scene, and say that it's a violation of church and state. The policy and the approach that I think is better is instead of fighting these things, if you're a secular person, join them. And in fact, I am part of a project to create a humanist piece of art to go into the mix during the holidays at the New Haven Green. And so instead of fighting the Christmas tree and the menorah, this group that I'm involved in, we are trying to create something to go with it and express human values and give a gift to the city that way instead of fighting. I read something uh, yesterday. Who the heck said this? Um, was it Johnny Cash when he was younger? His, uh, they'd be watching scenes of war and protest or whatever on TV, uh, and his mom would say, Oh, no, it was um, it was Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Sorry, Johnny Mr. Cash, Rogers, Mr. Yeah. Rogers. You can one, see how I got those. One more cardigans, one more black. <laughs> it's a simple mistake. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, Mr. Rogers' mom... You know, because Mr. Rogers, as you can imagine, when he was a kid, he was a sensitive kid. Um, and, and so he'd be watching the news and there'd be war and whatever else and bad stuff going on, protests and whatever, you know, if, uh, melees with police. And his mom would say, look for the helpers. There are always helpers. Look for the helpers. And it reminds me, you're, what you are doing, this kind of ethos you're, you're buying into yourself, reminds me of Mr. Rogers' mother, is what I'm saying. I'm trying to process that, Drew. I'm, I'm trying to figure out if that's... Uh something that pleases me or disturbs me that I'm being portrayed that way. Oh, man. And I don't have, just for the record, I don't have any cardigans. No cardigans, not even one. But I, do like, I do like helpful things, though, so I guess I, yeah, as I process that, I'm starting to think it's a compliment, and it I like that, so it thank is. you. It totally is. Listen, uh, we got to go, Tom, but uh, appreciate you having you back on the show again for our WTF segment, Where's the Faith? Tom Crattenmaker. And the website, of course, is his name, TomCrattenmaker.com. Uh, it's K-R-A-T-T-E-N-M-A-K-E-R. Tom. <laughs> Exactly right. Yeah. Tom, great to chat with you, man. Happy Hanukkahs. <laughs> yeah, you too, Drew. Thanks for having All me. All right, dude. Bye-bye. All right, short break on our show. And when we come back, Henry Nowen remembered. Short break. When we come back, Sister Sue.